This is episode 87 of the CB Northwest and Camp Tadmore Events Podcast. We're finishing up the 2013 Annual Enrichment Conference with Michael Lawrence. This is session four from Wednesday night, titled The Story. Mercy to you, you know, because you're, you're full on fun, but I know what was really going on all this week. Jeremy has very politely been encouraging me to stick to the time allotted, and, uh, you know, he's reminded me of the schedule, and he's reminded me exactly how much time I have, and of course, I have struggled with that a little bit, and so now, as a last resort, right, he seats you, he invites you to dinner, seats you at the table, and says, but you can't eat until he stops talking. So now the pressure is on. Thank you, Jer. Well, we're going to tell the story one more time. As I've been trying to impress upon all of the stories, help us make sense of our world and ourselves. We tell small stories about ourselves all the time. I am a, a white American who grew up in post-civil rights South Carolina. It tells a story right there. We tell small stories, but of course the biggest story that any of us tell are stories that, that connect us, not just with a family or a region of the country or, or a career, but stories that connect us with God, with, with, with the universe, with ultimate meaning. What I've suggested so far, though, is actually the most important stories aren't the stories we tell. The most important story is the story we're told, the story that is that God tells to us. And as we look at that story one more time, why don't we start at the beginning, the very beginning, with creation. The first thing to notice about God's story is that it begins with creation and it ends with new creation. The whole story is framed by creation. The opening chapter of Genesis, of course, tells how God spoke and, and created the heavens and the earth and everything that has been made, and then he rested from his labor. In chapter two, it's, it's, it's as if the, the camera zooms in and we get a tight, now detail, a focus, on the creation of the first man and the first woman, and we get to be witnesses to the very first marriage. Everything is good, like it should be on a, on a wedding day. Everything is perfect. And then tragedy strikes. As, as we've already seen, incredibly, Adam and Eve rebel against the one who gave them paradise. And so they are thrust out of the perfection of God's presence out of the Garden of Eden, and into a created world that is now cursed and fallen, into a world that has no rest in it. This chapter follows chapter, things go from bad to worse, until we get to Genesis chapter 6, and we're told that God was filled with grief that he had created human beings. So wicked had they become. Of course, we know what happens. What follows then is the flood. It was Judgment Day. It was Judgment Day for, for what Peter would later call the world that then was. 
But it wasn't just Judgment Day. As we pay attention to the story of the flood, we realize it was a day of recreation as well, at least in part. After the flood, God commissions Noah and his family just as he had commissioned Adam and Eve, echoing Genesis 1, using almost the exact same language. They are told to be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Now, though externally the world had been given a fresh start, internally, the hearts of men and women were just the same as they were before the flood. Not, not much had changed. Not really anything of importance had changed. And within a few short years, sin is again tearing Noah's family apart. And by the time we get to Genesis 11, we are once again witnessing humanity's prideful wickedness and God's merciful judgment. As God comes down and, and confuses the language of mankind at battle, scatters them across the face of the earth in order to slow the progress of their wickedness. Now, it's, it's at this point in the story that God's creating activity marks a profound change in the course of human history. God once again speaks, and he creates not a new world, but a new man. He takes the pagan idolater, Abram, and by his irresistible call of love, God changes that man's heart. And he changes his name as a reflection of it. Abram becomes Abraham, the man who believed God and followed him. And at that point, then, God doesn't stop speaking. He promises childless Abraham and his barren wife, Sarah, that God would, would make his family into a great nation. And so then, right according to promise, like, his, like we were thinking about this morning, not only did they conceive a son, but their grandson has 12 sons, and before long, you can't even count all of their descendants. They are a multitude. From a single man and a single woman, barren, they have multiplied and been fruitful. Now, the story rushes on. The nation of Abraham's descendants is enslaved by another nation, and so what does God do? He sends his prophet Moses to speak, to speak his words to Pharaoh. What happens when God speaks? Well, God speaks, and Egypt is judged, and the nation of Israel is liberated. Only well, they aren't quite yet a nation yet, not at that moment, or a collection of tribes. But at Mount Sinai, in Exodus chapter 20, God speaks yet again. And there in Exodus 20, we read of how God audibly spoke to the people. And in that speaking, created Israel as his special people, his chosen nation out of all the peoples on the earth. And he, what does he promise them? Well, he, he promises them a garden of Eden. Literally, a, a promised land that's flowing with milk and honey, where former slaves can be fruitful and multiply and rest. Incredibly, though if we've been reading the story, we're not really surprised, they rebel. And so God judges that whole generation. They fall in the desert, and he recreates the nation again with the next generation. God goes on to establish them in their own land, the promised land of rest, and he eventually raises up for them a great king, David, who gives them rest on every side from their enemies. Once again, though, 
like the generations before them, like Adam and Eve, what does the nation do? In the midst of rest, they rebel. This leads first to division of the kingdom, finally to judgment and exile. And scattered among the nations, among whom they, whose, whose language they, they don't even understand, we realize that Israel has recapitulated in her own history the first 11 chapters of Genesis. It's like it all happened all over again. Once again, though, God's creating grace intervenes. A remnant of the nation is brought back from exile. The temple is rebuilt. The walls of Jerusalem are restored. And, and yet, as we peer closer, there's something missing. The temple is rebuilt, but it's empty. There's no Ark of the Covenant there. God is not there. Jerusalem's walls are restored, but the throne of David is vacant. Until one amazing day, the Creator Himself appears in the form of a man. John tells us, echoing again Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. That Word was Jesus Christ, God incarnate. In His life, He did what you would expect God to do. He spoke, and the blind could see. He, he spoke, and the deaf could hear. And the wicked men crucified and buried Him. He rose from the dead, and with his resurrection, inaugurated the new creation. Before he left to sit down on, on the true throne that was his throne, the throne at the right hand of God the Father, he gave his disciples a commission to fill the earth, to multiply, to, to be fruitful. And he told them to teach those disciples to obey his rule. It sounds familiar. Adam and Eve were told to multiply, to be fruitful, to fill the earth, and to rule over it. These disciples are being told to go into all the earth, to, to be fruitful, to multiply, and to teach those disciples to obey his rule. Nothing happens at first. They're, they're afraid. They're, they're hanging out in Jerusalem. They're not sure what's going to happen. And then on Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes down. And these scared disciples begin to preach the good news, the life of new creation through Jesus Christ in languages that all the nations can understand. Babel is being reversed. And, and yet we're not yet back in the Garden of Eden. The New Testament will go on and, and it will describe our life as the life of the new creation. And, and yet we are still exiles in a foreign land. We have not yet finally come to that place of rest. 
we still wait for what John describes in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they? Where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them, nor any scorching heat, for the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That is the day we await. When finally this wilderness wandering, in which the sun beats down, in which there are many tears, is all over. And God has spread his tent over us. And we are finally at rest with him. Friends, that's the story of creation. And there are so many things we could talk about tonight in that story. Because when you talk about the story of creation, well, you're really talking about everything. Almost every major theme, every major doctrine, practically, in Scripture ties in to this story the way I just told it. I want us to focus really on just two things to take away tonight. I want us to think about how God creates. As we think about this story, how does God create again and again and again? And then why? Why does he create? First how, and it's really simple, and I'm sure you notice. God creates everything by his word. That's how God creates. He creates by his word. If you and I are going to make something, we need raw material to work with. We're going to have to expend effort and, and energy, and if it's complex, we're probably going to need help. Not God. Not God. As Paul says in Romans chapter 4, he calls things that are not as though they were. And then they are. And he does it just by speaking. And when the Bible refers to, to God's word, it doesn't primarily mean an, an audible language. Rather, God's word is, is the expression of all of his wisdom and all of his power, and all of his love. We have God's word in written form in the Bible. It's how we tell the story. But ultimately, as we've seen, Hebrews 1 tells us, God has spoken to us through his Son. 
whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. Now this means, of course, that, that whenever and whatever God creates, whether it's light or life or spiritual life, it is an act of powerful, irresistible, sovereign grace. Nothing forces God to speak. He never has to speak if he doesn't want to. But when he speaks, things happen. They can't help but happen. Now, nowhere is this more sort of gracious power of God's creating activity more vividly illustrated than in Ezekiel 37. Right there, God instructs Ezekiel to speak God's words to dry bones. And, and when he does, they get up, and life enters into them. Now, if you and I were going to tell that story, if we were going to make up that story, that's not the way we'd tell it. Right? If we were going to kind of create out of our own best imagination, Ezekiel chapter 37, what, what we would have God tell Ezekiel to do is first, now, wait a minute, before you say anything, let me put ears on those bones. That's not what God does. There are no ears present. And he tells Ezekiel, talk to them. Speak to them. Why? Because it is the very speaking of God's word that will put ears on those bones. Or think about John chapter 11. Jesus calls out to the dead corpse of Lazarus. And Lazarus gets up and he walks out of the, out of the tomb. Je Jesus didn't first somehow, like some other way, put life into Lazarus and, and then talk to him. No, he put life into Lazarus by speaking to him. The commanding, creating voice of God. And notice how the bones, and notice how, you know, Lazarus respond when God talks. The bones don't say back to Ezekiel, I don't really want to get up right now. I'm enjoying the rest. You know, you know Lazarus doesn't say, Lord, would you ask me again next year? I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying where I am right now. Could, could we do this later? No, when the voice of God rings out in gracious, creative power, not even death. Not even unbelief can resist that power. For it is the creating, sovereign power of God. Pastors, this is why we preach the Bible. This is why we preach God's Word. We, we can spend a lot of time doing other things. We can spend a lot of time on videos and skits and song and dance and all sorts of things that will attract a crowd and entertain them and their friends. We could also spend some time actually kind of coming up with our own stories, writing our own stuff. Some of you are very funny. Some of you are very smart. We could be very kind of intellectually and creatively stimulating. Brothers, our, our, our goal is not to entertain. Our goal is not to stimulate. Our goal, our desire, 
is that people who are dead in their sins will have life. Our, our goal and desire is that people who are spiritually blind will see. And for that, only God's word will do. Only God's word will do. It alone has the power to bring life to the dead through the word of the Holy Spirit as it is proclaimed through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Brothers, preach the word of God. Proclaim the word of God in season and out of season. I know it's out of date. I know that all the church guru guys, all the church growth guys will tell you do less preaching. People aren't into monologue. They like dialogue. They, they like drama. They like all this other stuff. Do that other stuff because they like that. Yeah, I know they like that. But that doesn't give them life. Preach the word. Now, you don't have to preach the word like I preach the word. Your style might be very different. Brothers, God does his work through his word. In a world gone awry. He has always done it that way. And I don't see why we should assume that finally here in the 21st century, like God has changed or something. And he's all of a sudden going to start working differently. Don't lose your confidence in the power of God's word. For it is through his word as he speaks that he brings life to the dead. That's the how. Now why? Why does God create? Well, the simple answer is that God creates everything for his glory. God didn't need to create anything. God doesn't create because he was lacking in something. God doesn't create because he had some need that the creation was now going to fulfill. No, God chose to create so that his glory might be the joy and the delight of everything that he created. That his glory might be magnified. That his glory might be enjoyed. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1 that creation itself, inanimate creation, is a display of part of God's glory, his majesty and his power, and it's meant to be seen. And, and we know this. Any, any of you, if you've ever stood there on, on, like, on the edge of the Grand Canyon, or, or, or if you've stood here on a day when there are not clouds, and you, you watch a sunset over the Pacific, you, you know what it is to be moved by the grandeur of nature. Well, why is that? Why is it that nature moves us so? The reason that nature moves us has nothing to do with nature. The reason nature moves us is because it is an expression of God's glory. And we were made to respond to it. But here's the amazing thing. As much as nature reveals God's glory, it is but a dim reflection of God's glory. Compared to you and me. In Genesis 1, we're told that the creation of human beings was different than all the rest of creation. People were created to reflect the very character of God. Genesis 1:27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Here is the pinnacle of God's 
creative work, and here is why we were made to be fruitful and to multiply. It, 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 it's, it's not just that God had like a population plan. No, it's that God desired living creatures who would fill the earth, not just with life, not just with intelligence, not just with creativity, but living creatures who would fill the earth with the reflected glory of God himself, which we alone are uniquely created to do. Do you want to know what you're supposed to do with your life? You ever wonder what your purpose on this planet is? Maybe people come and ask you this question. It's not a hard question to answer. You were created to glorify God. That's your purpose in life. It's your very nature. It's, it's hardwired into your genes. It is stamped on your soul. So, so do you want to know whether or not God has an interest in your life? Whether he cares what happens to you? Well, well think about why he made you. For his glory. Do you think God cares about his glory? I think God cares about you. Now, I think this has great implications for our discipling, for our mentoring and raising up of, of new leaders in our churches. In our discipling, in our mentoring, in our training, whose image are we trying to shape them in? I think a lot of times it's, it's our own image. We spend a lot of time teaching them our bag of tricks. We spend a lot of time sharing with them our techniques, our skills. Brothers, there might be a place for that, but I think it misses the point. In your leadership development, in your training of new leaders, in your raising of new pastors, teach them, model for them, that they were made for the glory of God. That, that, that means helping them understand, and it means you're gonna have to understand it first, life is not about you. Salvation is not finally about you. Your, your marriage is not finally about you. Your work is not finally about you. Your family is not finally about you. Your church is not finally about you. It's about God. It's about His glory. Brothers, I think if we make God's glory foremost in our disciple-making, leadership won't be much of a problem in our churches. I think this not only changes the way we think about leadership development, I think it changes the way we think about evangelism, and church planting. I want us to consider what the glory of God means for, for what you might call the destiny of creation. You see, creation has a goal. A lot, a lot of people don't think creation has a goal. A lot of people think creation is just a random walk through time or, or it's an evolutionary struggle or it's a never-ending cycle. But as Christians, we know differently because of the way God tells the story. God's story has a destiny, a goal, precisely because it began with a purpose. The display of the glory of God. That destiny has everything to do with Christ. 
who is the heir of creation. It all belongs to him. It is all going back to him. The one by whom it was all made and for whom it was all made. What does this mean? Well, well it means to begin with, it's, it's through Christ that we are made new creatures. You know, creation has a problem, and it's us. But it's through Christ that that problem is solved. Through his death, through his resurrection, as we put our faith in him and turn away from our sins, he makes us new creatures. You see, God never abandoned his original plan. That original plan that the earth would be filled with image bearers reflect back to him his glory. The, the, the problem is, of course, now because of our sin, we need to be recreated. We need our stubborn, <laughs> sinful hearts replaced by hearts that are soft to God's word and to God's love. It, we need to have happen what, what didn't happen after Noah. When the world got a fresh start, but nothing changed inside. We need to have happen what, what didn't happen with Israel. Because, of course, the prophets come along and they're constantly saying, Oh, Israel, you've been circumcised in the flesh, but what you really need is to be circumcised in the heart. You need new hearts. Well, this is precisely what Jeremiah promised the Messiah will do in Jeremiah 31. And it is what Jesus Christ has accomplished. Through his word, through the gospel, Jesus resurrects dead sinners in newness of life and he makes us new creatures. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. So right here, if, if we're going to fulfill this, this commission that God's given us, right, it, it starts right here with the basics of evangelism. As one recreated human speaks God's word of grace to a dead-in-his-sins human, and the Holy Spirit takes it from there and creates new life. But it's not just evangelism, right? It's, it, it, it's not just that, that we, as individuals, need to be made new creatures. It is in Christ, therefore, that we are once again the display of God's glory. We display God's glory as we are conformed to the image of God's glory, Jesus Christ. As he is formed in us, we now increasingly reflect the glory of God back to God and to the watching world. Paul tells us that we are God's workmanship, his creation, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. The point of good works isn't good works. The point of good works isn't moralism. The point of good works isn't, you know, that God will be impressed with me. No, the, the, the point is that God will be glorified. And this happens as, as we demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit, as, as we love our enemies, as, as we forgive just as God forgave us. We aren't earning our way anywhere. We're simply finally beginning to be what we were always made to be, a display of the glory of God. So you understand that, that when, when Jesus calls us to, to make disciples, to teach them to obey everything I'm, I've commanded you, he, he's not calling us to a ministry of moralism. He, he's calling us as disciple makers to be glory of God multipliers. 
But it's not just our changed lives that display his glory. In our union with Christ, we become his body, the church. The confusion and the curse of Genesis 11 is being removed. We saw an initial display of that at Pentecost. Paul goes on and talks about this in Romans chapter 12, verse 5. In Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Brothers in Christ, the church is meant to be a display of God's glory. As the divisions of this world count for nothing, and all that counts is a new creation. Galatians 6, verse 15. Because this is why we want our churches to be as, as ethnically and sociologically and economically and chronologically diverse, at least as diverse, as the communities around us. It's why I think we don't want clubs of people that all look the same. This is not a political goal. It's a gospel goal. As the gospel erases the barriers that this world has put up. As the gospel erases the divisions that come because of sin, because of the curse. As young Christians and old Christians happily worship together because all that counts is the new creation. It's also why we want to plant more churches. It's also why we want to be involved in missions. We want to fill the earth. That was the, that was the original commission. It, it, it hasn't changed. Why do we want to fill the earth with churches? So the earth will be filled with the glory of God. As the waters cover the sea, evangelism, discipleship, church planting, do you know what those things are? They are the fulfillment, the new covenant fulfillment of the creation mandate. Fill the earth and subdue it. But the point is no longer ultimately biological children, right? The point now is spiritual children. And the point is no longer finally earthly rule the establishment of the rule of the king, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. It's tempting, particularly in a place like America, with our conservative politics, to think that the point of the creation mandate for us as Christians is to rule America. <coughs> And this is the point. And this is the point entirely. What is America? America will pass away. But not the kingdom of God. Not the kingdom of God. The creation mandate has not been forgotten. But it has found its fulfillment in Christ. As we go into all the world. To make disciples. As we go into all of our neighborhoods share the gospel. As we look for corners of our states and our cities where there is no church, there is no display of the glory of God, and we seek to, to plant
plant a church there. Because we want, to, we want to obey the commission. Because it is finally all about the glory of God. For together with Christ, we are creation's goal. Let me just say that again. Together with Christ, we are creation's goal. The church is more than Christ's body. Together with believers from every age since the beginning of the world, we are also Christ's bride. I don't think it's by accident that the very last image we see of an unfallen world, right there at the end of Genesis 2, is the intimacy of a husband and wife on their wedding day. I don't think that's an accident. Because that's where God has been leading all along. Listen to John in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. The last day of our unfallen world was a wedding day. First day of the new creation in all of its consummation is a wedding day. Creation's destiny is the people of God with Christ. Wedding feast of the Lamb. So the story of creation, this, this story of the ever-expanding glory of God, is not some abstract discussion about glory. It's a love story. It's a love story. The story of a bridegroom who would stop at nothing, not even the cost of his own life, to win for himself a bride and to present her to himself radiantly beautiful, spotless, pure. The story ends with the bridegroom preparing a, a new home for the new couple, a new heavens and, and a new earth from which everything that might spoil that home will forever be excluded. There, there will be no more crime, no more pain, because there will be no more sin. There, there will be rest. The rest of a husband, a bridegroom, and his bride in an embrace of love. Only love. Christ and his bride now together display the glory of God's redeeming grace. And all the angels have to do is stand around and watch in awe.
speak to us. We pray that you would continue to speak to us through your word. We pray that you would give us ears to listen. And we pray that you would give us mouths and lives to then go on and continue to speak your creating words of love. That indeed the day would come soon and the kingdoms of this world become the kingdom of Christ. And this broken, fallen world becomes a world of love to the everlasting display of your glory. Father, allow that to capture us. Allow that to set our priorities. Allow it to warm our hearts. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.